welcome to The Ringer MLB Show. My name is Ben Lindbergh, and I'm a writer for TheRinger.com, joined, as always, by my fellow writer for The Ringer, Michael Bauman. Hey, Michael. Hello. Later in the show, we're going to be talking some medical news. We're going to have Dr. Jeffrey Dugas on to talk about a possible alternative to slash improvement on Tommy John surgery that Seth Manis, the former Cardinals reliever, underwent last year, and he is now trying to make his comeback. And so everyone is watching to see if he does come back or if his elbow blows up or what it means and whether that will lead to a larger improvement for pitchers and some sort of semi-solution to the pitcher injury epidemic. And you and I will have a bit of banter at the end of the episode because I think for the first time ever, there's been an intersection of a couple of our our main baseball interests, in my case, catchers, in your case, college baseball. You feel like you've been waiting. (laughs) So there's been one constant in my, you know, six or seven months at the ringer now. It's every time I've approached you to talk about college baseball on the podcast (laughs) or uh, talk to to Ryan or Mallory, our editors, about writing about college baseball, the answer has been no, nobody cares. (laughs) And we're we're going to break that streak today. Yes. I care. I finally care. And uh, we'll we'll talk <laughs> about why I care and, <laughs> and what it means for uh, non-college baseball, the, the kind of baseball that more people care about, I'm sorry sure. to say, later at the end of the episode. But before we go any further, it's time for everyone's favorite recurring segment on the Ringer MLB show. What did DePoto do? What did Jerry DePoto do? What did Jerry DePoto do? Talk to Mike Rowley about a trade or two. Is what did Jerry DePoto do? Last week, we talked to our Mariners correspondent, baseball prospectus writer Meg Rowley, about what DePoto did. And what he did that week was make multiple trades. So we talked about them and we talked about where that left the Mariners. And since then, DePoto has been pretty busy. So we're bringing back Meg to ask her our uh, usual question which is, Meg, what did DePoto do? (laughs) Well, you're going to be floored by this, but he traded some pitchers and some outfielders, and then at the end, he had a pitcher. (laughs) (laughs) This has been the theme of his his offseason. I will say that I I, uh, feel significantly better about uh, the the pitcher that came back to the Mariners in this particular scenario. So Yeah, give us the specifics here. What what were the moves? Who was going where? Well, so, so... Early in the day, we got a a move that I think before the second one dropped was like a huge head scratcher to people because as as you probably know, the Mariners employ approximately 1 million outfielders right now. Mm -hmm. Um, So he acquired Malik Smith and Shea Simmons, who is a human being who throws baseballs, uh, Mm -hmm. which I did not know, um, (laughs) from the Braves in exchange for um, some pretty significant Mariners prospects to the extent that the Mariners have significant prospects. So they sent um, Luis Gohara and Thomas Burroughs. Thomas Burroughs is, uh, you know, very new to the organization, but um, Luis Gohara was the like, highest ranked remaining pitcher in the Mariners organization and I think was something of a, um, a question mark going forward. So so we all sat there and thought, well, they don't really need an, a Malik Smith, though, because they have, you know, they have Dyson and they have Martine and Mitch Hanager and uh 
then it made a lot more sense when he sent uh, Malik Smith, who was apparently like the linchpin piece for uh, for the Rays to Tampa <laughs> for Drew Smiley along with some other um, prospects. So yeah, so the Rays were just like, get me Malik Smith, and we have a deal. Yeah, and and oddly didn't just call Atlanta and say, <laughs> hey, can we have Malik Smith though? We'll send you some some guys. So I, I you know, that was a little funny, but um, yeah, I, I think uh, this makes me feel, I still don't feel great about the the Mariners rotation because I I don't think that there's a ton of depth even now, but there's significantly more depth than there was before they acquired Drew Smiley. And he, you know, he had a really hard year last year. He was very home run prone, but I think, you know, he's an an interesting piece and has had success and, you know, doesn't walk a lot of guys and strikes a lot of guys out. So he could be a, a really important addition to this, to this Mariners team, because if nothing else, it probably means we see uh, less of Ariel Miranda starting. Sorry. Sorry, Ariel Miranda. <laughs> well, last time we talked to you, it was a very strange rotation. And now I guess it's slightly less strange in that there's kind of a, a credible starter slotted in at each spot. If you if you want to call Gallardo credible, it's at least people with experience. So that's, that's good, I guess. And um, the team should be good defensively, right? Like it, that should yeah. make up for some of it. Yeah, I think I don't want to um, say mean things about Nori Aoki because I got in trouble the last time I came <laughs> on this podcast and did that. But um, I... I will not miss Norioki in the outfield. Uh, mm-hmm. His his bat came around in the second half, but I mean, some of those, some of the routes he was taking to the ball, it was just. It's like you needed, uh, you know, the Benny Hill music playing the whole time that he was out there. So now instead of him in left and an aging Seth Smith in right, you know, they're going to be able to trot out, draw Dyson and Martine will come back uh, and then they'll figure out. I think they're still sticking with uh, Hanager in in right, although I don't know that we really know that he's going to be able to hold that spot. But behind him, they have other young fast guys like Ben Gamble and um, Guillermo Heredia. So they're they're younger and faster and um, I think is certainly a, a much more palatable defensive option in pretty much every spot. And they still improved in the infield with Segura, who's uh, an upgrade over Marte. So really the only place where they're dealing with a big question mark defensively is the, you know, the days when Dan Vogelback is playing first base. I finally, I've been quiet all this time because I've been trying to think of a question that I didn't ask the last time you we were on when DePoto <laughs> made this exact same trade. Uh, but no, between but, then and now. But, but, but Drew Smiley's better, though. So yeah. it's a little different in that respect. <laughs> well, it, he's sort of a high variance pitcher. And, yeah. and your colleague, Patrick Dubuque, wrote uh, on Tuesday before this trade happened about the idea that the Mariners window was potentially closing after this coming season, no matter what. And with respect to that, I guess that DePoto should target pitchers that have a lot of variance. If they're going to be good, they're going to be really good. And if they're going to be bad, you know, it doesn't matter. So what do you think of the idea that the Mariners window insofar as it exists really only has the one year left? And, you know, obviously you like Smiley is a a guy who could bounce back from a pretty terrible year last year. Yeah. Well, I I think that if it's not only this year, it's this year and next year, at least with, you know, with this core. So I think that if you're not going to spend money, and I think this shows that they are stubbornly resistant to that idea, which I continue to find kind of frustrating as a fan, that you got to bring in guys who you think can can push you over the edge because like we talked about last time, you know, this was almost a playoff team 
uh, and the offensive production that they're getting, especially from Cano, Seager, and Cruz, is quietly really good. Like they have some some really serious power on that side. So I think that you have to take advantage of this. And you know, Smiley was so is, is so weird because it really was just. I mean, that entire race team was sort of home run prone, but he was the worst case of that. So I think if he can be, you know, a better version of what he was last year, and you couple that with improved defense, then things can look different. If he's the same guy, then it doesn't matter what kind of defense you're playing because that ball's going over the wall. But uh, I think they have to try to maximize it as much as they can. But I really do think that it's if we look back on this core and they're not able to take the team to the playoffs, we're going to ask a lot of questions about why they didn't spend money. Uh, I know that there aren't a lot of really tantalizing uh, free agents out there, but it's starting to look pretty silly when you consider the fact that they have a year or two and there's still, you know, Jason Hamill still sitting out there. All right. So I'm going to ask you to close with two predictions. First, is DePoto done or will we be talking to you again very soon? And second, did DePoto do enough? Is this a playoff team or at least let's say, does it project to be a playoff team or is there a reasonable expectation that it should be a playoff team based on where it stands today? I think that they are done with anything really significant because there really aren't any more prospects to trade, <laughs> uh, at least not any that are really very good. So Yeah, but you don't need good prospects to trade for race pitchers. <laughs> This is something we've learned over the past few years. Yeah. Yeah. So I, I think that they're done from a big trade perspective. Of course, you know, I say that and then you'll put this up and they'll have, I don't know, shipped <laughs> Kyle Seeger somewhere. Um, we'll just talk to you next week. Jerry, though. don't you dare. Yeah. It'll just be me sobbing into the mic for 15 minutes and then you can call it good. So I think that they are done. And he said that, that they're done with sort of the big acquisition part. Apparently, Smiley was like someone that he'd been targeting the entire offseason. So we love broken things sometimes. And is this a playoff team? You can hold me to this. I think that they will be heavily in the running for a wild card spot. I think the division is still well away from them. I don't think that they Mm -hmm. did enough to take, you know, take down the Astros or the Rangers, but I think that they will contend for a wild card spot assuming that they stay healthy. But I think that when we did the Mariners preview podcast for Effectively Wild last year, I said that too, and I was wrong. So um, you <laughs> they can were hold close. The- you weren't that They wrong. were. They were. It's, you know, it's really great to care about baseball the final weekend of the, of the season. So, and that's not something that's a given with the, with the Mariners. So it's, it's better than nothing. Okay, so this has been What Did DePoto Do? If you want to find out what DePoto does in real time, you can follow Meg and get her instant reactions on Twitter at Meg Rowler. And who knows, we might be talking to you again soon. I guess even if he doesn't do something, we could have you on just to tell us he didn't do anything. That would almost be more surprising. That would be breaking news. (laughs) Breaking. Jerry just sat in his office, thought about his life. (laughs) Just looked at his depth chart and said, yep. I'm done. We're good. That's it. I'm happy. (laughs) (laughs) All right. Thank you, Mick. Thanks, guys. All right. And we'll be back after a brief word from our sponsor. I'm going to take just a minute to tell you about Simply Safe. Home security services can be just as bad as the robbery you're trying to prevent. It can cost you thousands, they lock you into long-term contracts, or you're stuck writing huge checks with no way out. But now there's a smarter way to protect your home with Simply Safe Home Security. Built by a Harvard-educated engineer to make you safer, Simply Safe provides security that you can trust. While most alarms rely on a phone line, which can easily be cut, we've all seen that scene in the movies, Simply Safe is wireless and portable with a cellular connection built in. You get professional 
national monitoring with police dispatch so your home is safe around the clock. There are no annual contracts, no commitments, no lock-ins. And best of all, with Simply Safe, 24-7 protection is just 15 bucks a month. That's less than half of what most places charge. So opt for a service you can rely on and protect your home the smart way with Simply Safe. Get more security, more freedom, and more savings. And here's the part of the message they call the call to action. Visit simplysafe.com slash ringer to get 10% off your system today. That's Simply Safe, S-I-M-P-L-I-S-A-F-E dot com slash ringer. So some of you may have read an article in the St. Louis Post-Dispatch last week by Derek Gold about the former Cardinals reliever Seth Manis, who is attempting to come back from a new sort of surgery, an alternative to Tommy John surgery, same problem, but corrected in a way that if it works, could really dramatically shorten the recovery time. And also quoted in that article was Dr. Jeffrey Dugas, who is an orthopedic surgeon at the Andrews Sports Medicine and Orthopedic Center. That is as in the dreaded Dr. James Andrews. And he pioneered this surgery. You may have read about it and him in Jeff Passan's book, the arm as well, and he is joining us now. Hey, Dr. Dugas. Hey, good afternoon. How are you? We are doing okay. So you did not perform Seth Manus's surgery, but you have performed the surgery many a time, and so you can tell us what it involves. Can you give us the origin story, and how did you develop this, how many people were involved, and what does it do differently from the Tommy John surgery, the reconstructive surgery that everyone is familiar with? Sure. So over the course of, you know, doing these things with Dr. Andrews and and, in Birmingham for 15 years before we tried this, uh, we found that we were doing basically the same operation, which is a great operation. The the modified Job technique, the docking technique, all of these are different versions of Tommy John surgery where you take a piece of tendon and create a new ligament, drilling tunnels in bone and adding a tendon and, and making a new ligament outside of the native ligament. And we all know the success rate of that. We have a lot of statistics on it at all levels of of throwing and other sports. And so it's been a great operation. But there were times where we were doing this operation and the pathology we saw, particularly in younger patients, was not the same as what we saw in more experienced throwers or in bigger injuries. So we had the same same hammer for every injury. And so the idea was, is there a lesser lesser operation we could do for some of this pathology we see, particularly in younger throwers? And it turns out that a guy named Buddy Savoie, who's a very skilled elbow surgeon, previously at Mississippi Sports Medicine and, and now at Tulane over the last 10 years, he actually did this and published on it in the mid-2000s. He published on simply putting a suture anchor in one end where the, where the injury was and repairing it back to bone. And his results were incredible in high school and collegiate athletes, baseball players. And this went relatively unnoticed, even though it was published in our trade journal, the American Journal of Sports Medicine. But if you look back to Frank Job's original article, which was, uh, which was written on his patients by John Conway, who subsequently went on to be the Texas Rangers doc for a long time, and also a very skilled elbow surgeon, they repaired a few in that series. They weren't all Tommy John reconstructions. And, and that paper included Tommy John himself. They actually did some repairs, but relative to the reconstructions, the repairs didn't do very well. Uh, Only two out of seven major leaguers returned to play. So based on a 29% success rate, repairs didn't do very well in the the idea frame. It got panned basically among elbow surgeons. 
and and really nobody did it again for a while until Buddy did it. Now keep in mind that 25 years you know went by and we had better technology, better sutures, better anchors, and a lot more experience with the procedure. So Buddy actually did this uh, in the mid 2000s. So I got to give Buddy a lot of credit and John and other elbow surgeons. And we started talking about, would there be a way to add to what Buddy did with a simple anchor on one end and use a technology that is called an internal brace, which is developed by a company called Arthrex out of Naples, Florida, where they took a biologically enhanced tape, which is made out of suture material, a permanent suture material. And they originally did this for ankle sprains. And they basically put an anchor at each end and put this tape spanning the two anchors. So there's two limbs of the tape spanning the two anchors. And then in addition to that, the, the tape that we use is biologically, co it's coated with a collagen, a bovine collagen. So there is a biologic additive to this tape. So we thought, okay, well, let's see what that does. And we, we tested it in a lab. We did a couple, of, we did about 10 cadaver specimens. And we looked at the biomechanical characteristics of that testing and we saw and we compared it to our standard Tommy John operation. And we found that it was at least as good in every parameter we tested. In some cases, better, but at least as good as what we were doing with Tommy John surgery. So this was back in 2012, 2013. And then we needed the right patient to walk through the door. And so I had a high school senior who came in after the summer of his junior year, getting ready to start his senior year. And he was only a pitcher, and, and the only way he was going to get to play was to do something that wasn't going to take him 12 months to get back. And he wanted to play his senior year, and, and he and his mom, we talked about this idea that it had never been done in a patient, but we had tested it, and, and they decided to go for it. And, and so he, along with three other patients that I did, and one of them was a gymnast, one was a javelin thrower, and one was a uh, football player, we did four of them in the first six months, and the two, the two throwers got back within six months. And the kid that I did, the first one was pitching, pitched his whole high school senior year and actually went on to pitch two years of college ball at junior college before he gave up baseball and never had another day's problem with it. So we actually waited a little while before we did more baseball players. We wanted to see if this would work. And then we started doing a few more baseball players. But over the course of the last three years, what we've really stuck to is that this is for people with end avulsions so they evulse the ligament from one end or the other, and the quality of their tissue is actually pretty good. It's not diseased tissue. It's not destroyed tissue. It's good tissue that tore, not deteriorated tissue that tore. And so when we've stuck to those parameters, and that's what we've stuck to, we've done about 150 of these in Birmingham, and there's probably been you know a couple hundred of them done around the country. The results of that have been very good. We've been able to see a shorter recovery back to play. And, and so George Paletta, who's also an, an outstanding elbow surgeon with a lot of experience, he did this on, on a couple of major leaguers last year. And, and so we're looking forward to seeing how these guys do coming back. And George and I had a number of conversations before he undertook this in a major league guy. And, uh, and so far, they're both doing fine. We still have a lot of proving to do on that, on that point with the, with the upper level guys. But in the high school and college kids, you know, with good velocities, so far this has been a good thing. But, it, but again, it's not for every UCL. It's not for every Tommy John injury. If, if there's a tissue deficiency or the tissue quality is poor, this is a bad idea. They need more tissue. If, if they've got good tissue that's just torn or partially torn, 
this turns out to be a pretty good answer. So I'm interested in the how you get that right patient because your your original patient, the high school kid, like if if this doesn't work, he just plays one less year of high school baseball and it's not that big a deal in the grand scheme of his entire life. But for somebody with like Seth Manus, uh, even though you didn't perform the surgery on him, this is his livelihood. And it goes if it goes badly, it could end his career or the best case scenario, he has to go get the traditional Tommy John and then spend another year, year and a half rehabbing that. So like, you know, you only get so many cracks at this with big league pitchers. You know, how do you convince somebody to undergo a surgery that you've tested, but, you know, there's still something to being the first major league pitcher to to undergo it? Yeah, I, I have to say I wasn't there when George talked to him about it. George and I talked about it. George had a fair amount of experience with this. You know, he had done 50 of these or so with good results for a couple of years before he did uh, the major league guys. The honest answer is we, we knew that at some point somebody was going to be the right patient for that, and, and it turned out that they were the right guys for that. I have since done a guy who's a major league level pitcher. I can't tell you his name, but he's a free agent this year, and hopeful that he's going to get back, you know, sometime late in the season or something like that. But it's it's one of those things that I wouldn't say that we convince them. I, I think it's almost that they convince us. You know, we, we talked to them about the option. In speaking to several GMs of major league clubs, I, I was not eager to do this in a major leaguer until we had a lot of data. And I wouldn't say that we necessarily even have a lot of data now. We've been approached by a couple of, of, of upper-level guys, good, you know, high-level throwers, Olympic throwers, stuff like that. And, and the conversation is always the same. Look, we, we don't have years and years' worth of data on this. Here's the upside potential, but you've got to understand that as opposed to something that we know works really well and does have a little longer recovery time, I can tell you with relative certainty what Tommy John surgery looks like because we've done that for 30 years, 25, 30 years. I can't tell you what this is going to look like in a major league pitcher five years down the road. We we just don't have that data. So I would imagine that it wasn't so much that George convinced them as it was that they convinced George. And you mentioned that this is only an option if the tissue is healthy and in a, a certain kind of condition, which is maybe more likely to be the case with a younger pitcher who has less wear and tear on his arms. So you don't know if a pitcher is the candidate for this kind of surgery until you open him up, right? And That's exactly right. And is there any expectation about what percentage of major league level arms would be candidates for this, given all of the mileage? You'd have to MRI them all to know the answer to that. The honest yeah. answer is you can't know that. but. We can set them all for a possible, you know, if, if we're thinking repair. And, and there are some times where you just know they're not going to be a candidate for that based on, you know, their elbow history or what their x-rays look like and what their MRI looks like and things. But if we go into it, if we think it might be an option or we think it'd be a good option, we tell them we, we have to have the backup plan here. If, if it doesn't, if we get to the tissue and the tissue is just not good quality or they're, you know, gelatinous ligament disease that, that is just bad disease ligament, we're going to have to do the full thing. And every single patient that we've done understood that that was a possibility. And I would say just in my own hands, we're probably 85 or 90% predictive of that. You know, we've been, we've been accurate with our prediction pretty, pretty good, but it's still a feel thing. It's a visual and feel thing. You gotta, you gotta be able to make that decision at the time game time decision. So I'm I'm interested in the the technology that allows you to do this because like you said 
Tommy John surgery has been around for 40 years and it's not like repairing the ligament never occurred to anybody, but this, this new tape allows you to do that. So, you know, the word tape conjures up certain images to people who didn't go to medical school. So, you know, what is this stuff made of? How big a, a slice of the material do you need? You know, how does, how does all that work? So this stuff is really like a suture. Imagine a suture material and you'd think of the suture would be round, right? Mm. This is woven into a flat tape that's about two and a half millimeters wide, three millimeters wide, and about a millimeter thick. And it's a, it's what we call a super suture. It, it's a very high strength. I wouldn't call it Kevlar, but it's, it's a very high strength suture material. Super sutures came around about 10 years ago, and, and it was just stuff that was better than what we had in traditional, you know, braided suture. This is still a braided material, uh, but it's an ultra high strength braided material. So, and it's biocompatible. We've used super sutures for a long time, 10 years with no adverse issues with it. So it really was just an application of an existing suture technology to a different shape. And so the suture is a continuous suture. Uh, the whole tape is, is, I think it's 20 centimeters long with tails of just normal rounded suture on each end. And so we pass the tape through the eyelet of a three and a half millimeter anchor, screw-in anchor that has an eyelet on the end. And so a, a three and a half millimeter drill hole is made, which is smaller than what we normally use for, for Tommy John surgery. And then this plastic anchor is screwed over a, over a guide wire with the eyelet at the end so that the tape is kind of dunked into the tunnel at the end of this screw in anchor and the, the anchor holds it in place. And then we've got two limbs of the suture tape coming out of the tunnel that we can then dunk into a second tunnel with a second anchor. Same drill, same three and a half millimeter anchor. So it's, uh, they're, they're small holes and they're drilled at the origin and insertion of the ligament. The ligament is repaired where it's torn and then this tape sits over the top of the native ligament. One of the important things about this tape and, and this whole idea is the tape is never designed to be the primary restraint. It's never designed to be the new ligament. It simply serves as a backstop as well as a delivery mechanism for some collagen. So we're, we're creating a, a, what we, and it's really called an internal brace. It's a, it's a brace across the ligament that creates a, a safety net for the native ligament repair. I feel almost qualified to perform this procedure now. I'm going to go scrub up <laughs> if you need me. Um, I, you know what? You'd be shocked at how if you came and watched one, you'd think, wow, that was 30 minutes. That's, that's pretty good. That's no big deal. Yeah. Well, that's what I was going to ask. How much more or less complicated a surgery is this, whether in the time it takes or just the finesse required? In my hands, a standard Tommy John operation is about a 45-minute operation. This is about a 30-minute operation most mm -hmm. of the time. We have to expose, in our, in our hands, we expose the nerve and pull it out of the way. We don't transpose it in most of these repairs. Anybody that's having ulnar nerve symptoms, we will. But we don't transpose it in every one. So it is definitely a little less invasive. But that's not really the issue. You know, Tommy John surgery is a well-tolerated operation with, with not really many problems. So I don't necessarily think that being less invasive is the benefit. Uh, you know, the nerve part of it is not really the benefit. It's, it's just the idea that you can keep what you had and repair it and get it to heal with, with the additive of the brace as a backstop. 
And can you tell us whether with Mainess specifically or just the other clients you've had, the other patients you've had, how this changes the rehab and the recovery timeline and and really what everyone wants to know, which is when are you going to get back? What we've seen, and I can't speak to, to Mainess or, or any of the other guys that George did, but I, from what I understand from George, they're on about the same time frame. We keep them in a brace for six weeks, just like we would for standard Tommy John surgery, they're getting their range of motion back during that time. When they've completed their, when they get their range of motion back completely, we start a a program called plyometrics. They start with two-handed plyometrics and move to one-handed plyometrics with the operative arm. And that's about a four-week program. And then we let them start what's called an interval throwing program. So they start with, you know, certain distances and certain number of throws. And that's a little bit abbreviated, but not much from the normal throwing program. The difference is that we started about six weeks before, six to eight weeks before we would normally start it. And we, we cut out a few steps because we just don't feel like they need to do the end phases of that. Uh, you know, some of the end phase that we cut a couple of steps out. So in total, the, the average recovery for these people is, is six to seven months as opposed to, you know, 11 to 12 months. So you're improving technology, you're doing more research, you're understanding, you know, the anatomy, the techniques of the UCL repair with the brace and Tommy John surgery. But like, how much of this is just limited by the human body's ability to heal? You know, I think that that's a key point that, you know, healing is something you you have a hard time measuring. Most of these people are young and healthy and they, you know, they're not, they're not high risk for not healing. One of the questions you're asking in that question is, does the collagen dipping accelerate the healing? Does it provide a scaffold? And, and the honest answer is, we don't know. Is that a, may, Maybe the tape is simply a delivery mechanism. Maybe it has nothing to do with a structural thing. We, we don't know, and we can't really measure that. So I'm willing to believe that the, you know, we, could, we could say that the tape is simply delivering the collagen, and maybe that's what's making a difference. We don't know. And I don't know that we have a great way to find that out. So how nerve wracking is Manus's case for you, given that, you know, if it doesn't work well, that doesn't necessarily mean that the surgery is a bad idea, right? I mean, Tommy John surgery has been performed for decades and occasionally one doesn't work out. That doesn't mean it's not a good idea for for most pitchers with this problem. But if Manus's surgery doesn't go well for whatever reason, if his comeback doesn't uh, come to fruition, and then maybe it could make other pitchers think twice about this, even if it really is something they should be considering. So I guess, you know, are you the maybe second or third most nervous person in the world about the state of <laughs> Seth Manus's elbow right now? Uh, you know, I'm watching, you know, with with uh, with a close eye. You know, George is a good friend. And I, I got to say that I have to give George a lot of credit. This was a very thoughtful decision to do this. George didn't come to this decision quickly. Uh, nor without a lot of, you know, consternation about it, which means that I imagine, and I've never met Seth, but I imagine he didn't come to this decision quickly either and without a lot of thought going into it. I don't think that, and if I was a major leaguer, I would be looking at this closely, but I would still be looking at it with a slanted, you know, look at it, you know, with a with a careful look. I don't want to look at this procedure through rose-colored glasses. We've been very cautious not to do that, nor to say this is great, everybody should do this. Hear me not saying that. I think that we've got something in this operation that has a lot of potential, and I think we've shown that it'll work well at certain levels that I really don't have any concern about doing it 
for younger throwers with, with good healthy tissue and unfortunate injuries. I think to expand that to the major league level is a jump. And, and we knew that at some point it was going to happen. So I, I'm, I'm eager to see how it goes, but I don't think it would change my opinion of how it works for a younger thrower. So far, we haven't had to revise any of these. One of the questions that other surgeons ask is, well, what kind of problem are we going to create for revision? I haven't had to do that yet, and I don't know the answer, but I don't anticipate that revising these is going to be that difficult because we didn't really drill a big hole. We didn't, really, we didn't put anything in there that the body isn't going to like. And so I don't think that revising these is really going to be that much of a, of a problem. In fact, when it comes to revision Tommy John surgery, which we know doesn't have the best track record, it's, it's good but not great, I've actually revised one or two now that, are, that have had Tommy John surgery that they failed, and I revised them using a variation of this technique. And we're eager to see how those pan out because we know that revision Tommy John surgery is just okay in terms of return to play. So uh, we work with a lot of them. You know, we know all the major league docs. They're all good docs, and they all make great decisions. They have been very cautious about this, and, and in no way has anybody said, none of the major league docs said, oh, you shouldn't do that. We all have cautious optimism about it. And, and, and like all things, I think we, we have to be very careful not to herald this as something that we don't know for sure that it is until we know it. So you obviously don't know what the next breakthrough is going to be, but you know, is there a technological breakthrough or a, a technique breakthrough that you wish that you could do, but it just hasn't been invented yet? Huh. Now you're asking the crystal ball question. I think that we all believe that biologics are going to change you know, the world of what we do in orthopedics and in medicine in general. Things, you know, stem cells, uh, biologic additives, you know, how can we manipulate biology? And we're starting to learn some of those things with PRP and and stem cell treatments and things like that. You know, maybe 10 years from now, we'll be able to give someone a pill that tells their stem cells to differentiate into bone cells, osteoblasts or fibroblasts or chondrocytes or these different cell lines that, you know, in an arthritic knee, if we can give you your own stem cells, but then tell those cells to become cartilage cells, that would be a game changer. And, and maybe 10 years from now, we'll be able to, to give somebody a pill that tells their stem cells to differentiate that way. Right now, we can deliver a patient's own stem cells or their own PRP or whatever to a site. We can move them. We can get them and move them from point A to point B. But we really can't do anything past that point. So I, I think that towards the end of my career, we're going to be trying to manipulate biology the way we want it to go. And, and I think that'll change the game for a lot of things, not just this kind of stuff. This is maybe going beyond your purview, but do you think that there are certain technologies that you might envision using that, you know, like the league will have to legislate whether it's allowed or, you know, like whether, I mean, we've seen certain treatments, you know, you have to leave the country to, to try them because they're not approved. That you could sort say of thing. bionic like, arm. Like, yeah, sure. I mean, <laughs> literal eventually, bionic arm. Eventually, bionic arm, right? And there, you know, many stages between where we are now and where we are then. And I'm interested in will the league decide that 
a certain point is too much or is cheating or is an unfair advantage or is it all kind of fair game? And I don't know whether it's too soon to say about any of that stuff, but do you have any opinion as a surgeon? I think that the leagues in general, the professional leagues, the NCAA, the IOC, you know, the the governing bodies of sports do a really good job of preventing unfair or, you know, having programs that prevent unfair advantages. And, you know, I don't see them as big brotherish. I see them as protecting the integrity of the games that they oversee. And they're good people to work with. They're very smart and educated people. And, and they're not, they're not trying to prevent competition. They're trying to prevent unfair advantages. And, and I don't see this stuff as being unfair advantages at this point. And I don't really think that these type of things will go down that path. I, I don't see them being uh, widespread use for, for reasons, you know, prophylactically. You're using them for people so that they don't ever have a problem. I don't think anybody's going to have an operation to prevent an operation. You know, because as, as I tell patients all the time, there is no problem that surgery can't make worse. And you have to always remember there is a downside to every procedure and every treatment. And, and you have to understand the risks. Everything has a risk. And I, I just don't see professional athletes going down the path of surgery to prevent a surgery or treatment to prevent a treatment. So I, I don't see that. I don't see this stuff going down those paths. But I do think that the governing bodies do a good job of, of legislating that stuff. And for this particular surgery, you've been careful to be cautious when talking about it with us today, but what would need to happen for some of that uncertainty to be resolved and for you to be able to say, yes, this is a great idea for everyone? I, I need the sun to come up another couple hundred times and, <laughs> and continue on the path that we're on. I, I've also been very happy to see that the people that have done it, you know, the John Conways, the, the George Palettas and, and other really talented surgeons who are smart people with lots of experience. These guys know their way around the elbow. These people are under, understand what we're doing and, and they've adopted it for the right patients. That That's as rewarding to me as any of the patient outcomes, because these are my colleagues. You know, these are the people that, that I benchmark myself with and to see them adopt an idea that I had with other people is really rewarding. So I've been pleased that they've taken it, but not run past where we all think it should go. Everybody has taken the same cautious approach to it. And I think we all feel cautious optimism, you know, without wearing rose colored glasses for it. You know, we're not expanding the indications to be something they're not. So do you have any idea of how long the primary repair would last? Like, you know, a full Tommy John surgery, the ligament lasts something like eight years on average. Do you have a, any data that would allow you to make that kind of projection for this? Or are you just waiting to see, see what happens? Well, let me answer that by telling you some of the concerns from, from people that have been doing this for a long time. One of the concerns is what's called stress shielding. You know, are we stress shielding the native ligament? Because that was done in ACLs and other ligaments back in the 80s with, with synthetic grafts and things like that. Stress shielding causes the native ligament not to be very strong. Well, that was one of the concerns, and that's why we tell people this is never the primary restraint. We don't want the tape to be so tight that it becomes the primary restraint to valgus stress in the elbow. So I don't think that stress shielding is going to be a real problem, but that's still to be to be seen. Eight years, we're not even halfway there with the first one. 
and he's not even pitching anymore. So it'll be a while before we get somebody to eight years, and it'll be a long while before we get enough of them to talk about. We're getting ready to report on the first, I don't know, 50 or 75 that are a, hundred, that are a, a year out from their surgery, and we've been doing it for three and a half years, and we're just now getting to the point where we can report one-year data. So to get to five-year data is probably going to be another 10 years before we have that data. And so, we, like I said, I, I need the sun to come up another couple hundred times to know the answers to that. And, and I have to also take the approach that if it doesn't work out, it, it's not a poor reflection on me. I think we went about this the right way by demonstrating it scientifically and cautiously using it clinically without telling people, wow, this is the greatest thing ever. We, we have been very cautious not to do that. You know, I, I think that that's the right approach. Okay. And last question, we've been calling it primary repair. Do you expect that name to stick or is it inevitable that the first prominent pitcher to come back after having the surgery is going to have his name attached to it forever? Is it possible that this is going to be the Seth Manus surgery? Is it going to be <laughs> rebranded somehow? Interestingly, uh, I would call it primary repair with an internal brace reconstruction. Rolls right (laughs) off the tongue. (laughs) Yeah, it rolls right off the tongue. So, you know, people are calling it the internal brace. Interestingly, and I say this not to hope that somebody picks it up because I really do not want my name on it. I was warned about that very early in my career, not to have your name put on anything. But somebody actually suggested we call it the Dugas Ulnar Collateral Tape Reconstruction which is the duct tape. And I said, I'm not going to have my name associated with duct tape. So thank you very much. Not that there's anything wrong with duct tape, but I do not want to be considered the duct tape surgeon. Thank you very much. (laughs) Leaves the inside of the elbow really sticky. Yeah, exactly. If if this becomes the Seth Manus procedure, that's great. I'd love to meet him and talk to him. So uh, I I wouldn't have a problem with that at all. I'll tell you, you know, and ultimately it probably ought to be called the Mark Johnson procedure because he was the first one to do it. All right. Well, we will be watching this surgery very closely and Seth Manus's recovery and any other pitchers who have it. You can find Dr. Dugas on Twitter at Jeff Dugas MD. And if you tweet your MRI at him, he can diagnose you from afar. I'm sure that's how it works. (laughs) (laughs) Absolutely. Thanks, Dr. Dugas. Thanks, you guys. I appreciate it. Have a great one. Okay, so as we teased or maybe threatened at the beginning of this episode, (laughs) we're just going to wrap up with a a brief discussion about college baseball and catchers and headsets. There's been some discussion about allowing catchers to use headsets in games so that their coaches can call pitches in real time. This is something that a couple of schools have already experimented with in fall ball, but it's not yet allowed in actual NCAA play. But the question of whether it should be allowed in play just came up at the convention of American baseball coaches. And one of the things that they were meeting about was the pace of play in college baseball, which as I learned from reading these stories on D1Baseball.com by Aaron fit and Baseball America by Teddy Cahill. The pace of play problem is evidently even worse in college baseball. Games are even longer in college baseball. Do you have an explanation for why games are, what, 20, 25 minutes longer than the typical major league game even? Yeah. So I, as a an entertainment product, I prefer the college game to the professional game because it's just sloppy enough to be chaotic. Mm-hmm. And like, there's a lot of because not everybody can, you know, you can get away with throwing 
mid 80s if you have a good change up. So there's a lot more variance in the type of pitcher you see. There's a lot more variance in pitcher usage. Like pretty much every college closer has been pitching in the Andrew Miller fireman role uh, when it comes down to crunch time for as long as I've followed college baseball. And, you know, there's a little more contact. There are fewer strikeouts. I think there are still fewer home runs even after they they change the ball. It's just a, a style of play I like a little bit better. But there was an instance I was covering a, a tournament in Houston last year. Uh, and it was a game between Arkansas and the University of Houston. And Arkansas used seven pitchers and they made a pitching change with two outs in the ninth inning of a game that they led 12 to three. And this game took like four hours. <laughs> and like the, the college game shouldn't take as long because there are no TV breaks. So the, the gap between right. innings is shorter. It's just coaches cannot shill and let their players play. And this is what they're talking about doing is almost no college catchers call their own games the way it is now. They all look into the dugout, they get hand signals from the pitching coach, and they relay those signals to the pitcher. So mm -hmm. in order to save uh, estimated like three to 10 seconds of pitch, they want to put a headset in the catcher's helmet so the pitching coach can just call out the the pitch he wants the catcher to throw and the catcher, you know, there's, you don't need to, to go through visual signs or anything like that. Right. Like NFL quarterbacks, basically yeah, getting yeah, plays, play calls. Exactly like that. So, mm -hmm. you know, there's conversations about costs and like, you know, can you get this done for like a hundred bucks a headset? And uh, I think they're doing that at the university of Georgia for their fall practices and stuff. And that's not the issue. The issue is like, stop coaching. They coach so much there that they had to limit the number of offensive timeouts you're allowed to take to three a game. Like you'll see the manager call timeout, call the batter down to the third base coach's box and like tell him to bunt instead of, you know, just going through signs or letting the hitter swing away. It's a trust issue between coaches who just can't let go not being in control of everything at every moment of the game. And so we get more mound visits, we get more offensive timeouts, we waste a ton of time cycling through catcher signals. So like mm -hmm. the technology, I think, is what you're more interested in. It, mm -hmm. I just this shouldn't be a problem, but it is. Yeah, I'm interested in it just because if it happens, then it becomes conceivable that it could happen in the minor leagues, it could happen in the yeah, major sure. leagues. And so I am not sure how I feel about it. I kind of have conflicted feelings about this sort of thing. Like it came up last year on an episode of Effectively Wild when I was talking about the Dodgers and their like laser positioning yeah. system. Oh, yeah. It was, uh, and Howie Kendrick with the, the cheat card in his back pocket at left field. Right. Which you're allowed to do that, but the, the controversy was about whether a team should be able to mark actual locations right. in the outfield to station their outfielders so you could use a, a laser rangefinder like golfers use and you could mark out a, a specific spot on the field and then you could leave some sort of indicator there so that an outfielder could just stand where the mark is instead of doing the thing they do now, which is either get waved around by the coaches or just have some sort of cheat sheet in their back pocket, which is something that even you see with catchers in the major leagues. Sometimes they have some sort of condensed scouting report almost like on their the back of their arm or something, yeah, and they and will see, refer to that. The quarterbacks have this in, in football too. They have the, mm -hmm. the yeah. playbook essentially on their wristband. Yeah, and so generally, I guess I'm in favor of the idea of players kind of being left to their own devices once they're on the field, and then it comes down to your instincts for the game or your preparation for 
the game and the onus is on the team and the coaches to prepare the players to do a certain thing because they can't tell them to do it once the game has started. I, I think I like that idea and I'd even be in favor of doing away with mound visits altogether for non-injury related mm-hmm. reasons because, I mean, it's always been part of baseball, but it's a pretty ridiculous part of baseball when you think about it that guys can't get through 10, 15 minute innings without meeting with the people that they could have just been talking to in the dugout during the half inning break. So I like the idea of players being left to their own devices, but that's not what's happening. Of course, all college coaches who I guess the explanation for their overcoaching would be that their jobs do depend on the team winning, right? Like it's not like a a minor league manager whose job is understood to be separate from the team's wins and losses. It's about development. Whereas if a college baseball program doesn't win, that jeopardizes the coach's position, right? So it kind of puts him in a, a moral hazard sort of scenario. Right. And I mean, that's, I think Aaron made that, made that argument in his article too. And under the current rules, like I don't blame the coaches for maybe blame is the wrong word. I understand why coaches want to have more control or why they do things like Arizona did throw in um, JC Cloney every single game in the college world series, Mm -hmm. even though it might be bad for him in the long term. Like I understand the pressure and incentives of of winning, but you could just, if you eliminated bound visits or if you force catchers to, to call their own games, I don't know how you'd make it illegal to get signs from the dugout or anything like that. But if, as long as the playing field's level, then you just have, to be good at different things like Mm -hmm. and i personally if we're going to incentivize coaches to to do certain things in order to win i would like to incentivize them to teach and to Mm -hmm. empower their players rather than to treat it like a video game and i'm skeptical i think that this would actually save that much time maybe it's different in college baseball but in the majors there are teams that call pitches from the bench even even at the highest level and I wouldn't have said that that causes a delay. I would say that the greater delay in the time between pitches is pitchers just not being ready to pitch. And it's not that often that you see a pitcher staring in for the sign and the catcher is still looking over to the dugout for for signs. Like usually the catcher's sitting there waiting and the pitcher is not ready to see the signs yet. So I would think that's the case. Like the SEC's put, you know, put on a pitch clock and... Right. It, it's this is not where you notice the game dragging. Like where you mm-hmm. notice the game dragging is mound visits, mid inning pitching changes, you know, conferences between the the third base coach and the hitter. Mm-hmm. You know, in Teddy's article, he estimated like if if it saves three seconds a pitch it, at three hundred pitches per game, that's like fifteen minutes. I think was was mm-hmm. his estimate, and that's you know that would get it back down to about the length of a major league game. Yeah. But yeah, I mean, it's significant. It's, I, I think it it doesn't. Yeah, it's, it's significant. You know, it adds up. But like the length itself, I you hear whenever pace of play comes up, if people say the only people who care about this are the writers and like, yeah, absolutely. I've bitched about a game going four and a half hours when I had to drive home three hours after the game on a Sunday night or whatever. But I would rather have it just seem quicker than actually be quicker, if that makes any sense. Eliminate the, yeah. the dead space. And mm-hmm. this is not... The time between pitches is not, it doesn't feel like dead space, but mid-inning pitching changes do. Yeah, I I agree. It's less concentrated. I would say that depending on the pitcher, it can still feel like yeah, dead space. Yeah, that's true. I did go- who, who watched Joel Peralta or- I was going to say know. Jonathan Pabelbon. I haven't watched a full right. inning of Jonathan Pabelbon in probably five or six years. <laughs> yeah. And who was it? Uh, Steve Traxel was the- Pedro Baez on oh, the, yeah. the Dodgers this past postseason. Yeah. 
So I would say that that's worth doing something about, but I would say that the pitcher is usually the culprit, not so much the catcher. And so I'm skeptical that the headset idea would actually save the time between pitches that you're trying to save. But if it would, then I guess... I don't have really a rational argument against it. It kind of makes me uncomfortable to have that level of meddling, but the meddling is already happening. I mean, if the coaches are calling the pitches, then that's already happening. The headset is not fundamentally changing anything. It's just, in theory, streamlining it, and it doesn't seem like, as you said... We're going to come up with a way to not have coaches or managers signal from the dugout. So if that is a permanent part of baseball, then we might as well just make it, you know, as small an impediment to the pace of the game as we can. So it makes me uneasy, but I don't know that I have a really coherent argument for why this is a problem or or whether it's some sort of slippery slope that would lead to something worse. Yeah. So the coaches meddling sort of I'm unusual, I think, among college baseball fans or or even people who covered college baseball in any depth in that I think it's a bad thing how coach centric the identity of the sport and the coverage of the sport is. There's even more of a cult of personality around coaches uh, in college baseball than there is in football or basketball. And Mm. uh, it's like that just always sort of creeped me out. And like, I, Mm. you know, I've never gone to a baseball game to watch somebody manage. And I mean, there are power dynamics that, that make me uneasy that come with all that. Um, so like this is a, a problem with an obvious solution, but you're only going to avail yourself of that solution if you're okay taking power away from people who have most of it. Mm-hmm. And college baseball structure is so hierarchical. It's so it's so paternalistic. And the the media coverage of college baseball is so coach-centered because like the coach is the the coach, the GM, like he is your your source of information. He's the identity of the program, even more so than it is certainly in pro baseball, maybe even in other college sports. And if the problem is that the games are too long, then you should actually fix the the issue that the games are too long rather than just using that as a way to give people who have who already have the most power even more of it. Mm-hmm. Although it is interesting to think, you know, at the major league level, we often talk about how much managers are worth and does it really make a difference? And if a significant number of them are calling pitches or maybe it's not the manager, maybe it's a member of the coaching staff, but that's an area where you think there could be a significant difference. It's huge. Like we, often, oh, like- we often talk about the manager's impact being before the game and after the game and the, the clubhouse and how he handles the players and all of that. But if he's actually having input into every single pitch, that is value that we are not currently and taking it's- into account. Right. And in, in the college game, I mean, the the coach, I mean, he's the manager, he's a general manager, he's the PR staff, he's the brand of the program. Like, mm-hmm. there, there's a reason that people act like college baseball coaches are, are this important because they are. But I would rather have them impact the game, like manage a little bit less uh-huh. if that's possible. All right. Well, we finally did it. Your, your okay. long held desire to talk Season about Season starts in baseball. another month. We're going to do it again. <laughs> so that will do it for this week. We will see what develops, what DePoto does, what new dystopian technology is introduced to the game between now and then. But we'll be back same time, same place. Talk to you then.
talk to beg rally about a trade or two is what did jerry depoto do what did jerry depoto do what did jerry depoto do we're gonna talk to beg rally about a trade or two is what did jerry depoto do what did jerry depoto do what did jerry depoto do we're gonna talk to beg rally about a trade or two is what did jerry depoto do Talk to Meg Rally about a trade or two. Is what did Jerry DePoto do? What did Jerry DePoto do? What did Jerry DePoto do? We're gonna talk to Meg Rally about a trade or two. Is what did Jerry DePoto do?